Well, to the chairman of the board, Ken Olson, and the vice chair, Chris Veldman, and the rest of the elders and the deacons, and to the whole church family, I want to uh, thank you so much, uh, Ken, especially for your kind words. Um, um, we are deeply humbled, uh, the love that you have shown us and continue to show us, and we, we are so excited about the, the direction of this church. Is anyone else excited? I mean, this has been a fun week. This has been a fun year. We had a great night um, a few nights ago and reached a lot of people in this community. And, and by God's grace and for his glory, we will see that continue to happen in, in the days ahead. During the Veritas Hour, uh, Jessica Alsom uh, came up and, and gave me a gift from her and Thomas. And it was in a bag, and I set it down next to my notes. And I can't remember who said it, but someone said, I think you're supposed to open it. And so I opened it and didn't notice there was a card, Jessica, inside. But I did notice that there was this little stuffed animal. And looked at it, and I thought, oh, that's cute, and put it back in the bag. And then afterwards... Um, between Veritas and the service, I had a chance to read the note, and I did not bring that with me. I wanted to share you the, the essence of that note uh, from Thomas and Jessica because it encouraged me so much as they uh, thanked us for our ministry, as Ken and the rest of you have done. I want to thank you again for that. But this was meaningful for me because in the note, Thomas and Jessica talked about a sermon that I had preached. And if my memory serves me correctly, it was 53 weeks ago I preached this sermon uh, on the life and legacy of George Whitfield. And one of the themes uh, on, on Reformation Sunday a year ago, one of the themes of that sermon was to help you understand the boldness and the courage of George Whitfield. In fact, he was so bold, if you remember, that there were seasons in his ministry where people in the congregation were so angry at him that they threw dead cats onto the platform. And Thomas and Jessica said that we, we thought you might like one of these. I don't think it's dead, but that's how I'm always going to remember this, as a, as a dead cat. This is going in my study, and I want to thank you for encouraging me to continue to be a, a bold preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone once said the problem with preachers these days is no one wants to kill them anymore. You know, there was a season in church history where many preachers um, were in the, the targets of their Opponents, And so uh, I, I remember uh, Winston Churchill, the great theologian Winston Churchill once said that there's nothing more exhilarating than to be shot at and miss. <laughs> and so my my hope and my prayer is that God would continue to raise up bold and faithful preachers at Christ Fellowship. I want to share about something that I experienced yes, yesterday because I witnessed one of those bold preachers. He probably does not want me to call him a bold preacher, but make no mistake, my good friend, Steve Nibbs, is a bold preacher. As he stood up at his mom's memorial service and shared a few closing comments, they were billed as a few closing comments. Make no mistake, they were not closing comments. It was the unadulterated, unfiltered, faithful gospel proclamation. And Steve did it in about four or five minutes and blew me away. 
And I just want to say, uh, Steve's not even here this morning. Steve and Nicole and their family are not here. But I, I just want to tell you how proud I was of my friend Steve Nims. And want to also encourage you to be praying for Steve and, and Nicole and their family. And Steve's dad, Gene, as they mourn the loss of a, of a dear woman. She was a precious saint. She's with her Savior now. And we rejoice with them, but we also grieve with them. I was going to say turn in your Bibles, but I don't even, do I, is my Bible down there, Jerrine? This is not good. Where in the world, did I put it in here? Whew. Okay, reset. Would you open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2. Last week we took a little bit of a break to celebrate Reformation Sunday and as God will give us the freedom, we will do that each and every year. But for day, today, we're going to move back into the book of Romans and explore Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. Just to recap, two weeks ago, as we came together, we learned this fundamental lesson. And I would draw your attention to Romans chapter 2, verse 6. This is the lesson we learned, that God responds in two ways to people. Reward for the faithful and retribution for the faithless. This morning we have a, a large group of people. Some of you are numbered among the faithful. And some of you are numbered among the faithless. For those of you who are faithful. The way that God will respond to you. Is he will Grant reward. For those of you who are numbered among the faithless, he will guaranteed give you retribution. You will receive the just payment and penalty for your sins as you spend all of eternity in hell. One of the things I have grown accustomed to doing over the years is I, I love to look at church doctrinal statements. And more often than not, I will read the doctrinal statement that concerns the doctrine of hell. And most of you have seen this where hell is defined as the absence of God. And nothing could be further from the truth. Our God is omnipresent and he will be eternally judging the unrepentant. In hell, And I can't think of anything worse to be an unrepentant person in hell, staring into the eyes of the one who went to the cross and I turned from him and I spurned his love and I spurned his glory and I lived for my own pleasures and for my own inclinations. And so remember that if you're a number among the faithless, God will judge you in hell. Romans 2.6 says he will render to each one according to his works. And I want to just recap and, to, and have you remember these lessons that we learned two weeks ago as we explored Romans 2.6 through verse 11. And that is that God's response here is absolutely compelling. He renders to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. There is reward for the faithful. Verse 8, 
But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The word render in verse 6 is, is a word that is translated payback. To, to punish a person based on what that person deserves. You see, if you're numbered among the unfaithful, you're heaping up wrath. You're heaping up judgment on yourself every day by every motive of your heart, every action, every intent. You heap up that judgment that will come on the final day. And so God's response is compelling. Secondly, God's response is comprehensive. If you look at verse 6, notice the phrase, each one. Each one. That is, no person will receive immunity in God's economy. God will respond to every person. You will either receive reward or retribution. Three, God's response in Romans 2.6 is clear. And this passage, along with a host of passages in sacred scripture, is certainly not ambiguous. We are not left to guess how God will respond in the way that we live our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 and 10. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In Revelation 21.8, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, The sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Fourth, I want you to see and remember that God's response is always consistent. It's always consistent. Each of God's responses are consistent with his holy character. Louis Burkhoff says the fundamental idea of righteousness is that of strict adherence to the law. That is to say that God never deviates from the law. He must live in accordance with his holy and his righteous character. And so over and over again, the word of God tells us that God is a God of justice. My fear is that the evangelical church in America has largely forgotten that God is a God of justice. Listen to these words in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without Iniquity, just and upright is he. Or Psalm 111, verse 7, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. And who can forget Revelation 15, 3? They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Now, each of these five lessons that we've learned about God are vitally important, but the one that strikes me is the fifth lesson. 
That is that God's response is always commensurate. That is, God's response is in proportion to our works and our deeds. Matthew sixteen twenty seven. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will, here's the word again, repay each person according to what He has done. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming soon. The Lord Jesus says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And so how will sinful creatures respond to this God who is holy, holy, holy? How will sinful creatures respond to this God who will show no partiality? The response or should I say the responses, are almost painfully predictable. Jews are prone to reply, We have received your law, O God, and we obey it. Can't you just hear it? We see that in the book of Romans. The Jews would respond with something like this. After all, we are in the direct lineage of our father Abraham. Didn't you hear he had many sons? Many sons had father Abraham? He's our daddy. You gave us the law. We are law keepers. We are the chosen people of God. The response of the Gentiles are predictable as well. We didn't have the law. God, we did not have the law like the Jews. Therefore, since we are ignorant of the law, we are off the hook. I remember taking business law in high school, and I only remember one lesson from business law, and I think it's because my father, who taught business law, said, Son, this is a lesson you must never forget. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Some of you have had the, that grand pleasure of hearing the sirens and the lights. Watching that in your rearview mirror and knowing that you're the one who needed to pull over. And you were going to get a ticket because you were going 45 in a 25. I just saw it the other day. And you roll your window down and the officer says license and registration. And you utter those famous words. I had no idea. That the speed limit was 25. And the response will be predictable from the police officer. Ignorance is no excuse. Here's your ticket. And that's the same for the Gentiles. Since we have not received the law. We are not off the hook. We, we will be held accountable for our transgressions. And so the question I want to pose today is, how will you respond to a God who is impartial? How will you respond to this God who will most certainly judge justly? The title of the message this morning is, A Portrait of the Estranged Creature. And I want to have you stand to your feet as we read our passage this morning and then take time to unpack it. May I remind you that this is the, the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of the living God. Romans chapter 2 verse 12. 
For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that you have revealed your character your expectations. Lord, we're so grateful that you have made a provision through your son so that we might be rescued from the power of sin and the penalty of sin and one day be free from sin's very presence. Lord, as we make our way through this amazing epistle, I pray that our hearts would be soft and pliable. Lord, I pray that our our phones would be set aside unless it's to read the word of God, that All distractions would be uh, moved out of our lives, that our eyes would be open, our ears would be ready to listen, our hearts would be soft, and that we would be ready to respond to the truth of God's word. Lord, may you encourage this, your people. May the word of God affect us in in powerful and life-changing ways. And the thought that keeps occurring to me, Lord, is that we need to play for keeps. Uh, There's a lot on the line. Eternity is at stake. And As I often say, I'm especially concerned for young people. God, I pray for young men and young women that their hearts would be drawn to the living God. Lord, that you would raise up a a new George Whitfield. You would raise up a new Jonathan Edwards. You would raise up a, a, a John Wycliffe, a John Owen. Or that you would raise up uh, proclaimers of the truth who are utterly unwilling to compromise the truth of God's word. And so, Lord, would your spirit be our teacher and our guide, our instructor, our comforter, our convictor. May you strengthen us as we walk through this passage together in Jesus' name. Amen. In our passage this morning, we will witness Paul the Apostle painting a portrait of the estranged creature. The creature who is separated from God. The creature who is is unreconciled. The creature who is shaking his fist at the living God. And there are two headings I, I want you to consider with me. And the first is found in verses 12 and 13. And that heading is this, that all creatures stand condemned before God. When Dreen and I were in Edinburgh, Scotland, one afternoon, Dreen decided that she just needed to take uh, about an hour-long nap. And I, I was still just red-hot and rolling, ready to go. I wanted to see anything I could see. And, and so I went, and as Dreen took her a, a rest, I went and I wandered the street. And I know Tom and Laura, you've been there. I walked down the Royal Mile for about the 14th time. The Royal Mile is that street where you move from John Knox, his residence, all the way up to 
St. Giles Cathedral where he would make the journey each day and he would ascend into the pulpit and proclaim the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, on this day on the Royal Mile, I witnessed a street preacher. And this preacher was saying in so many words that all creatures stand condemned before the living God. And I stood in shock and horror as the Scottish people would utter four-letter words at this preacher. He was a gracious young man. He was a kind-hearted young man. He was merely sharing with these dear people that apart from grace, that apart from the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you stand condemned. And the thanks he got were four-letter words as people would yell out blasphemous comments. And they would shout out, they would shout out statements that concerned the theory of evolution. And they would shout something out about the Bible they disagreed with. And they would curse this man out. That is what we see happening in our culture here in America. That is what would happen. I'm convinced if, if one of us were a street preacher and we went to downtown Bellingham or went to right here in Everson on Main Street and we stood on a platform and said, Ladies and gentlemen, if you're not in Christ, you stand condemned before the living God. Look at verses 12 and 13. For all who have sinned without the law, that is the Gentiles, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, that is the Jews, will be judged by the law. For in it, the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the, rather, for in it, not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul makes reference to all two times in verse 12, which here refers to the creatures. Both the Gentiles and the Jews. The first group includes the Gentiles. The second group, of course, includes the Jews. And so we begin in verse 12 with the Gentiles. May we refer to them as the guilty Gentiles. I want you to see the, the reality now, the stark reality of their condemnation. The Gentiles, according to Paul, had not received the law of God. As such, they will Perish without the law. You remember in the book of Galatians, Paul tells us that, that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. And so without the law, we will perish without the law. That word perish means to be destroyed, but not annihilated. That is significant because we have so-called evangelicals who embrace the so-called Doctrine of annihilationism, which suggests, I believe in a living hell, but all of the unrepentant who go to that hell will be snuffed out. They'll be annihilated. My response to that is, number one, it's not faithful to Scripture. Number two, what kind of uh, an eternal punishment is it to scorn the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel to go to hell and just be snuffed out? So this word perish means to be destroyed, but not annihilated. We see the word throughout the pages of Scripture. In Matthew ten twenty eight, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, 
but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, when, when you present the gospel, essentially you are helping people understand how they can escape from God. How they can, how they can be delivered from the wrath of God. That's what Jesus suggests in Matthew 10, 28. In Luke 13, 3, it says, No, I tell you that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, destroyed but not annihilated. John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. That is a promise for you and I. If you have been granted eternal life, you will never perish. That is why yesterday at Steve's mother's memorial service, that while we grieve with Steve and his dad and the family, we can also rejoice because his mother is in the presence of her Savior and all the saints. Jesus goes on and says that no one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And who could, who could leave out Probably the most famous New Testament reference of all time, John 3.16. You knew it was coming. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have eternal life. This is the reality of their condemnation. But turn now to the reason for their condemnation. And the reason is important to understand. First, they turned away from general revelation. The Gentiles turned away from general revelation. We learned about that in a few messages in Romans 1, 18 to 25. Let me review it briefly. We have seen in verse 18, chapter 1, that God plainly reveals himself. Verses 19 and 20, his divine nature was clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So they are without excuse. So men like Richard Dawkins, men like the late Christopher Hitchens, men like Sam Harris, who all consider themselves to be atheists. Please understand there is no such thing as a bona fide atheist. There is no such thing as a bona fide atheist. We all have the knowledge of the living God residing within us. Just as a footnote, some of you who love to study about creation science or intelligent design, one of the most articulate, courageous defenders of intelligent design, Philip Johnson. Some of you have read his books, Darwin's Trial, It was amazing. He was a law professor at Berkeley, of all places. He went to be with the Lord last night. Blew me away. Didn't even know he was sick. But here is a great hero of the faith. They turned away from general revelation. They knew God, but did not honor him or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1.21 Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for 
the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so the, the Gentiles, the first reason for their condemnation is they, they turned away. They turned aside from general revelation. They also turned away from the law of God, which is written on their hearts. And we see that in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Every person knows the good he ought to do because the law of God has been etched onto his or her heart. Listen to John MacArthur. He says, the fact that such, th- that such people did good things, knowing that they were ethically good, proves they had a knowledge of God's law written on their hearts. Therefore, if those people never come to trust the true God, their good deeds actually witness against them on the day of judgment. You think about your unconverted family members and friends who do good things. It is the good things that will be the final justification or bear witness against them on the day of judgment. There's a third reason for their condemnation found also in verse 15. And that is that the Gentiles ignored their conscience. They ignore their conscience. Richard Sibbs, one of the old Puritans, used to say, the conscience is the soul's automatic warning system. Never forget that. The conscience is the God-ordained soul's automatic warning system. And you all know how the conscience operates. You say something, you think something, you go someplace, you do something, and it's this little thing. It happens right here in my mind, right here on the right side of my brain. It goes like this. Have you ever had that happen? Where you say something and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Or you go someplace and you're 20 minutes in, and you hear, right, it's right here. Do, 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 and you're like, oh, I should not be here right now. Have you experienced that? That's the soul's automatic warning system. I remember hearing a story about a man seated on a bus in England. And when he, it was a busy bus. It was filled to standing room only, basically. And he was, he was on this bus, and he dropped his pencil doing a crossword puzzle in London, dropped his pencil. And so he got out of his seat and he leaned over to pick up his pencil. And the guy standing behind him hopped in and took a seat. Got you, didn't I, Abby? Wow. That's not good. Why do we know that's not good? We all know that when someone leans over to pick up his pencil, you don't steal his seat. Why? Because our conscience knows I'm going to say this in a very unsophisticated way. That is not cool. That is just not cool. And some of you have experienced that. I experience this every time I go to the Republic of Belarus. There are people that I met, that I meet in Belarus, and it's as if they don't have a conscience. They don't, it, it doesn't bother them to step in front of you, to cut in front of you. And what I'm told by my Belarusian friends is, oh, that's just part of the culture. You know, there's a word for that. Hogwash. They know that's not cool. But what the Gentiles do here in a a salvific way is they choose to ignore their conscience. Paul speaks of people in the last days whose consciences are seared as with a hot iron. They ignore their God-given conscience. 
But the Gentiles are not the only one who stand condemned, of course, before the living God. Verse 12 also says that the Jews are guilty as well. Paul says this of the Jews, and all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so notice quickly the reality of their condemnation. That word judged means to be condemned. That's what the word judge means in verse 12, to be condemned. And so unlike the Gentiles, the Jews had received the law of God. And so Paul says, all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And what fascinated me as I studied this passage of Scripture is that verse 13 that says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified, is merely a reiteration of the lesson that we learned from verse 6. That says, He will render to each one according to his works. Those who demonstrate a pattern of good works will receive a reward. Now, as a Protestant, as a Reformed theologian, as a Reformed preacher, as a Reformed man, we're on a, a dangerous precipice right now whenever we speak of works. Verse 6 says, He will render to each one according to his works. Those who demonstrate a pattern of good works will receive a reward. But remember this, good works never save Anyone. Good works never save anyone. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, but faith is never alone. If you are a regenerate person, if you have received the riches of God's grace in Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, guaranteed good works will flow out of your life. Good works are a supernatural result of justifying grace. And so all creatures, both Gentiles and Jews, apart from grace, stand as condemned before God. John MacArthur is helpful here once again. He says, all people are created by God for his glory. But when they refuse to come to him for salvation, they lose their opportunity for redemption, for becoming what God intends them to be. Then they are only fit for condemnation and destruction. That is to say, they stand condemned before God. It gets more intense if you drop down to verse 16 in Romans 2. that says, on that day... When according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We not only learn that all creatures stand condemned before God. We learn also here in verse 16 that all creatures are accountable before that God. Would you do me a favor and hold your finger in Romans chapter 2 and go over to the book of Acts just for a moment. Acts chapter 17, only a few pages over. Acts chapter 17 and look with me at verse 31. And I cannot remember if we put this on the PowerPoint or not. We'll find out here in a second. There it is. Notice verse 31. And see this alongside Romans chapter 2 verse 16. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed. Now, the personal pronouns here are very important, are they not? Because he, that is God the Father, has fixed a day on which he, that is God the Father, will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he, that is God the Father, has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him, that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, from the dead. All creatures stand accountable before God. That is to say, your sin, as the scriptures teach, will find you out. You think about a common criminal, a person who, who gets away with a crime, and then he or she commits another crime, and another crime, and Randy, you, you'd be the best person to ask about this one. Or, or Scott, we could learn that eventually your crime will find you out. It doesn't matter how gifted you are, how talented you are at your crime craft. Your, your crime will find you out. And in terms of the Christian life and living in God's universe, all creatures stand accountable before the living God. I want you to see several things from Acts 17.31. First, notice that there is an appointed day. Court will come into session. The time is coming when every person will stand before their creator. Every person will give an account. We see that in verse 31. But I also want you to see that there will be an appointed judgment. An appointed judgment. And here we see this word crino, once again, to pass judgment, to render a legal decision. All our secrets, all our plans, all our motives, all our actions, all our activities, all our double-clicking late into the evening will come into the light. And we will stand and be held count, accountable for the, before the living God, before Jesus Christ. Notice also there will be an appointed judge. Verse 31 says that God the Father has appointed Christ as the judge. Jesus is not only the Savior, he is also the judge. In John chapter 5, we read that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The heart behind this message this morning is that some of you who are dead, that for the first time you will hear and you will live, and you will walk out of Christ's fellowship, a brand new man, a brand new woman, a brand new boy, a brand new girl, you will be delivered from the power and the penalty of sin. You will have, as we learned in Veritas this morning, a, a totally different disposition, a totally new set of values, a totally new set of goals. Your heart now will be for holiness, not haughtiness. Your heart now will be to live for the living God, not to live for yourself anymore. In Acts 17.31, we see that it is the Lord Jesus Christ 
the second member of the Godhead who will announce the eternal destiny of the two groups of people in redemptive history, both the Jews and the Gentiles. I can only hear the response of the Jews. Whoa, 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 hold on. Announce the eternal destiny of who? Didn't I tell you that my father, his name is Abraham, and he has many sons, many sons that father Abraham, and I am one of them? Did I not tell you that? But we need to remember that in the final analysis that Jesus Christ will announce the eternal destiny of both the Jews and the Gentiles. Notice the basis back in Romans 2.16 on which he will judge. First, Jesus judges, and this, this fascinates me, he judges according to the gospel. Paul calls it my gospel. Jesus will judge according to the gospel. Of course, we all know that the gospel means good news. The good news is that everyone who who turns from their sin and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ will be delivered from the wrath to come. This is the message that we at Christ Fellowship want the world to hear. This is the message that we want our missionaries to share to the nations. This is what our children in school need to hear and understand and grasp. That if you refuse to to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from your sins, that you will face the wrath of God for all eternity. We will be delivered from the wrath to come. Second, Jesus says he will judge the world in righteousness. Acts 17, 31. That is, his judgment will be just. God will never condemn an innocent person. The Lord Jesus Christ will never condemn an innocent person. Isn't that comforting? The only problem is, I've never met an innocent person. Not even once. And the only way we can be rendered as innocent rendered as spotless, rendered as righteousness, if we receive the righteousness of another. Luther called it, and I love this so much, he was almost ahead of his time, he called it alien righteousness. We need the alien righteousness of another, and Jesus Christ is the only one who is qualified to grant us his alien righteousness. And so this is the portrait of the estranged creature. Apart from Christ, we we stand condemned. Each one of us, both Jew and Gentile, is held accountable to God. As we close, I want you to know that Paul has an end game here, as you may have gathered. His aim is that we would understand that as sinners, we are under the just judgment of God. And one of the big lessons in the book to the church in Rome is that, he, that, that we would find refuge in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me leave you with a closing challenge by asking four very personal and penetrating questions. Number one, how do you respond to the God of the universe who judges justly? Number two, what will you say to God on judgment day. You remember the response of Bertrand Russell, the atheistic philosopher. Dr. Russell, what will you say if it turns out that you were wrong and God actually exists? And without batting an eye, Dr. Russell said, I will say not enough evidence, not enough evidence. 
Very sad. What will you say to God on judgment day? Will you come as a Gentile with your list of excuses? Or will you come as a Jew with a spirit of entitlement? Question number three. Where you sit right now in the pew, do you stand, do you sit as one who is guilty before a holy God? Have you turned away from God's plain revelation of himself? Have you turned away from from the law of God? Which is his plain revelation of his character. Have you ignored your conscience? And finally, and most importantly, have you found refuge in the shadow of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? I had a friend by the name of James. I was probably 19 or 20, and I did youth ministry. I worked at Dairy Queen, and we did a Bible study we called The Final Hour that began at 11 o'clock and ended at 12 o'clock. Beautiful memory that I have. We used to have 30 or 40 kids that would go to the park, and we'd sing worship songs and study the Word of God together. And my friend James, a high school student, never forget what he said to me. I said, James... Have you found your refuge in the shadow of the cross? And he said, no. He said, I'll, I'll do that down the road. I'll, I'll do that some other time. Right now, I'm having fun. I'm having the time of my, time of my life. And I lost contact with James, and I don't know if he's still having the time of his life, but I can guarantee you if he's not found refuge in the shadow of the cross, he's a miserable wretch. He may have cars, he may have houses, he may own property, he may have real estate, he may own a business, he may be a self-made millionaire. He is a miserable wretch if he has failed to find his refuge in the shadow of Christ's cross. Know that the only hope for the estranged creature is to fly, fly to the Lord Jesus Christ and find safety in his gospel My prayer is that as we close our Bibles and sing these closing songs and have a time uh, of partaking of the Lord's Supper, is that your prayer would be a simple, thank you for saving me. Isn't the gospel beautiful? I mean, much of my thoughts this morning have been to unconverted people. And those of you, the vast majority of you who are Christians may be thinking, And can you get to something more challenging? Can you get to something a little bit more in depth? Like, can we get to Romans 6? And by the way, I can't wait to get to Romans 6. But as I've often said, you remember what the response was to Luther. Luther, why do you keep proclaiming the gospel? It's like we've heard it four million times. And Luther said, like, just imagine that jolly guy, gut sticking out, tonsured head. I proclaim the gospel every week because the people keep forgetting And we're no different. We need to be reminded of the gospel. The sinful creatures that we are, we need to be reminded that apart from grace, we stand condemned. Apart from grace, we are held finally accountable. And we will render we will stand accountable before the living God. I trust that you find your safety in the shadow of the cross. Let's pray together. So, Lord, uh, thank you for helping us to understand what is really a little bit of a tricky passage. But I thank you that you make it clear through the power of your spirit. Lord, help us to remember these, these big lessons, these headings that, that we stand condemned apart from grace, that we are accountable for every decision, every action, every motive, every secret thought. 
But these will all come to light as we stand before the living God. We thank you for those who are Christians, that all of our sins are covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. May we find victory in that. Lord, I think of the men this morning in class as we talked about some pretty intense sin that if anyone is struggling with with sin or a whole series of sins, that today would be the day where a, a line would be drawn, not in the sand, because the sand can be kicked away and rendered obsolete, but we would draw a line in the pavement, and that pavement would dry this afternoon, and that we would say no more. We're going to draw a line and say, I will be a man, I will be a woman, I will be a boy or a girl committed to walking in holiness. And then we learn that blessed reality that to walk in holiness is to be a happy, a truly happy, fulfilled, contented person. May each person leave this morning, God, as one who is reconciled to you, who is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Remind us of these things as we partake of these very important elements, the the bread which represents our Savior's body and the, the cup which represents his blood that he shed on Calvary's tree. In Jesus' name, amen.